More Americans are getting a second or even a third job as inflation rages on in the U.S. economy as the prices of goods, services and gifts for Christmas are at record highs. We're going to talk about that in this episode and at how America may have come very close in the past year or two to a total collapse of the U.S. dollar. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. I hope you're all well. We're going to talk about inflation on this episode and another topic that really hasn't gotten a lot of attention in media circles and on the business channels, the collapse of the US dollar. We came close as a nation to the utter destruction of the US dollar with massive money printing and quantitative easing as it's known um, during the past runaway years. We're going to get to that in a moment and we're going to have two experts weigh in on it from an interview I did earlier this year. It's really fascinating and I went back to listen to it again recently and I came away dumbfounded at how close we came and may be to the complete annihilation of what was once the glorious US dollar. It involves the mechanics and the plumbing of Wall Street, the printing of money and the US banking system. My two experts are Nathan Lewis. He's the author of Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad and How to Fix It and the famed bank analyst Dick Bovet of Odeon Capital Group. I just want to say first there is lots of evidence that inflation in America is slowing down and moderating grindingly. Yes it's coming down and it does not at the same time give any consolation to ordinary US consumers who must still pay more this Christmas and throughout the holiday season for goods, toys, groceries, travel clothing, Broadway tickets, decorations, seasonal indulgences. Yes, they must pay more than a year ago, than two years ago. Um, Well, when I say seasonal indulgences, we might just want to scrap that because there's going to be probably less of that um, this month and into the new year, of course, New Year celebrations. So the widely watched consumer price index, the CPI, is now just below 8%. Inflation is on the decline in some respects by some measures, but you can still hear the groans and gasps at the checkout lines and counters in the stores, in the malls, restaurants, as consumers are pinched for cash. It's incredible. It's just an incredible economic uh, condition and if it's not checked of course inflation you run the risk of massive civil unrest we've seen it in other countries we just might talk about that on some other episode um according to fox news americans are in store for one of the most financially challenging christmas season in years fueled by high levels of inflation Families in 2022 are expected to spend far more on energy and less on celebrating the holiday 
including making purchases for family and loved ones. A quick stat, according to survey data by the nonpartisan National Retail Federation, the average consumer in America expects to spend $832 for core holiday items in 2022, and that includes gifts, decorations, and holiday meals. Now, that's down from $879 in 2021, and that's a decline of more than 5%. The expected drop in spending is due to increased costs for other household items, including basics like food and electricity. Despite the drop in Christmas-related spending, the National Retail Federation expects overall spending during the holiday season to increase by 6 to 8%. How could that be? Well, that means families are spending less on Christmas and more on keeping the lights on and food on the table. We're going to get to my interview, my fascinating interview with Nathan Lewis. He's an expert in this field. Um, his book is called Inflation. He co-wrote it with Steve Forbes and Elizabeth Ames. He has a number of other books out on financial topics. And he's a widely regarded expert in his field. And he'll be joined by Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group. It's a short snippet from an interview I did. I posted it in July and it still holds dear and it gets into this topic of money printing the gold standard when the dollar essentially had a fixed value and when we came off the gold standard in America and by some accounts all financial hell broke loose so you may ask the question are we better going back to the gold standard there's a lot of uh, supporters for the gold standard and those who say it's not the way to go but give you something to think about and how we've gotten into this massive money printing and then that will take us up to 2008 when we had a massive global financial crisis and then there was trillions of dollars unleashed on the US and global economies and the question was, why did we not see galloping inflation in the immediate years? Why did it come later than maybe some people would have anticipated? And Dick Beauvais explains that really well. Again, it, it's about the plumbing on Wall Street. Think of it this way. The, the, the money was there, but it sort of got held back, as it were, because the banking system, according to Dick Beauvais, around 2008 or so, broke down and uh, then there was a restriction if you will in lending and then of course things changed and then we did see rising inflation and that will take us to the end point of the interview the collapse of the US dollar what could have been and may still occur we don't know we hope it doesn't and I'm going to raise this um bit of speculation it may have some theoretical basis how do we not know that some of the deepest minds and the best brains and the most sensible people in government circles in the fed um have not already spoken about this the need to reduce inflation get the money supply down because if we don't we could have a total collapse and they may have warned 
financial services people in Congress that stop printing this money, guys. Stop being fiscally irresponsible because not only will we have more inflation, but we may drive the US dollar to the grave. Last point here. More Americans are getting a second job as high inflation rages. According to a Fox News report, an overlooked data point within the Labour Department numbers is the huge surge in the number of people holding second jobs. And last month, November, the number of Americans with a side gig jumped by 165,000 people. That is the largest increase since June and well above the 60,000 monthly average over the past six months, according to Bill Adams, uh, Comerica's bank chief economist. And that's a story from Fox News. If you want to hear more about the labour numbers, I recommend you listen to the latest episode of Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group and with yours truly. You'll be hearing more from Dick in a moment on this episode. We get into the labour numbers and we also have a wide-ranging discussion on various other topics. So it's, it's full of variety, but the labour numbers are interesting and uh, you might just stick with it because as we get later into the episode, we talk about Elon Musk and Twitter and China and just a host of other other fascinating topics, all interrelated geopolitically and financially, and it's called Odeon Capital Conversations, which is now a top-ranked Apple podcast in Canada, US, uh, Hong Kong, and in Europe, and top Apple podcast in the business news category. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. And before we get to all of that, it's time for our weekly Future Shock 2.0 with labour force expert Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, welcome back to Future Shock 2.0. You have some new findings on industry concentrations geographically in America. Yeah, hi, John. And this this is fascinating. Uh, there was just a study that came across, which we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, but I've been talking about the perfect labor storm for over 25 years, and I've written and spoken, you know, quite a bit about it. Uh, and so I always think I'm I'm pretty up on on what's happening and what the convergence of a lot of events. But this just struck me. I, I hadn't considered this before. Um, and fortunately, someone else did. So many of the reasons that we have labor shortage are pretty well documented. Lower participation rates, skill gaps, the aging of baby boomers, a lot, a lot, a lot of. Um, you know, a few, but there's a few that are really subtle, but are have a growing significance. So, for example, you forwarded an article to me that was released from the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. It studied the correlation between employer concentration, where a few companies dominate uh, the labor markets, and wages. And what they found is really interesting. And it's also personal uh, for me because I grew up in a coal town that. Uh, decades ago um, that has been on decline since then. So whenever there's an area where workers have fewer employment options because there's one or there's only one or two dominant employers, two things happen. One is there are actually what the study found is lower participation rates. So people just have fewer options. It becomes a take it or leave it job market. Um, as I mentioned, I grew up in the coal regions of Pennsylvania. The dominant industry was coal mining. 
Uh, and as demand fell, local leaders tried to attract new new jobs, new industries. Uh, but not everybody was enthused about switching jobs. Uh, so some didn't have the skills. Many didn't have the right attitude. Uh, going from digging coal to working on production line or working in a hospital or practice or doing a service career isn't everybody's cup of tea. Uh, but with only one big game in town, employers had more bargaining power. And so they started to hold down wages. This wasn't just an exception in my town. But apparently through the study, this is, is this widespread. So workers always have a choice and they have more choices now because of mobility. Um, and they can they can decide to learn new skills, switch careers or just pick up the roots and move on. But in small towns like across America, like mine, uh, many workers have fled their hometowns to pursue the American dream. Um, but it's still a place that many people call home. Uh, they live there generation after generation. There, there's good opportunities elsewhere, but um, they'd have to sell their home, leave leave their family, make new friends. For them, leaving is worse than staying, than being employed or working for less. Again, they stay, um, they accept more menial jobs. There's fewer jobs in that industry uh, to do. And then on top of that, from the employer side, because the economy may be declining or there is only one employer, it's tough to attract new blood, new talent into that area because people don't want to move in, into a declining town or a, a one, literally a, a one employer town. I thought this was fascinating. And, um, you know, it, all we have to do is look at the Rust Belt, you know, for, for those who aren't familiar with it, you know, that was that was the a lot of the Midwest, uh, maybe as east as, as Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh transformed itself from a steel town to a high-tech town, but cities like Youngstown, Akron, and even Detroit are still trying to figure it out. So yeah, the bottom line is this, when a few firms dominate the local employment landscape, it may be good for a while, but business leaders need to really pay attention if they start to see lower labor participation rates and depressed wages, because employer concentration apparently can come back to bite them. And Ira will be back next week for more of Future Shock 2.0. Ira is a workforce trends expert, a TEDx talker, top five global thought leader in his field, and host of the top rated Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization podcast with Jason Cochran. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. So inflation continues to be in the news. Inflation is moderating. It's coming down. The Fed's on top of it. It's raised interest rates. More interest rates are coming. Reduced the money supply. Um, it's something that I talk about and is explained to me in great detail by Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein on Odeon Capital Conversations Weekly. And uh, I bring up Dick's name in this instance because I had him on Dig Life Deep uh, this past summer with Nathan Lewis, who's the author of Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad and How to Fix It. And we had a great discussion on the gold standard, money supply, inflation, and where we're going. Stick with it. It's short, and I think you'll walk away with a lot more insight on why we must control inflation, because if you don't 
control inflation. You risk massive political social chaos, a dystopian future, a Weimar-style republic, and even a collapse in the US dollar. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. First up in the interview is Nathan Lewis, who addressed my question on the US coming off the gold standard. We came off the gold standard in the US, right, during the Bretton Woods um, agreement 1971. Then, according to your accounts and other accounts, all hell broke loose on the inflation front and the economic front after that. And this was under Nixon. Right. Uh, Essentially, what happened as we were on the gold standard, uh, there was a devaluation. Uh, So basically, from the founding of the United States to 1933, uh, and there was some goose around the Civil War and World War I. But basically, during that period, the value of the dollar didn't change much. It was roughly $20 per ounce of gold. It was $20 per ounce of gold in the 1790s. It was $20 per ounce of gold in 1930. And then Roosevelt, in the middle of the Great Depression, said, well, let's devalue it at $35 an ounce of gold. So you know, the, the, value, gold, the value of gold didn't go up. The value of the dollar went down. Now it took 35 of them, just like the Mexican peso, went from 3 to 20 to the dollar. Yeah, same idea. And then it, it, there was some more bunky business in, in World War II. But basically, from 34 to 71, the value of the dollar was $35 per ounce of gold. So it was a, it was a fixed value system, and, and except for that 1933 thing. It didn't lose value over time, uh, as ours does today. You know, uh, barrel of oil cost three bucks in the '60s. Now it's hundred. What happened? Well, oil's not that much different. It's your money, silly. <laughs> um, and and then so that was our experience in the United States for almost two centuries. And then in the 1970s, we left that kind of accidentally, carelessly, not because there was any great problem, because the '60s were very prosperous. And the value of the dollar essentially fell by about 90%. Basically, it fell 10 to 1, is my estimate. Went went from $35 per ounce of gold to 350 roughly, in the 80s and 90s. Now we're at 1,800. <laughs> so, and, and that, if you just think of it that way, you know, what happens when that happens? What would happen to Mexico if they went from 20 to 200 pesos per dollar? That's what happened to us. It's not that hard to understand, you know if you think of it that way. And your book covers a lot of interesting modern day phenomena, one of them being the modern monetary theory. Does this essentially make the case that modern monetary theory is is dead? It's a total and utter disaster, this idea of printing our way out of problems. Um, yes, basically, yes. Uh, ideas like modern monetary, modern monetary theory are always around. They're always in the background somewhere, just like communism or you know many other ideas. The question is, when does the do these kind of ideas become more broadly accepted by a society? It's more of an indicator of political disintegration or you know bad trends in, in politics. And uh, but it, it it's taken place in a context which is which is kind of interesting uh, and which we don't talk a lot about in the book, but Dick would know a lot about, and I think it's important. Is that if you look back since two thousand eight, it seems like we got away with a lot. Now, didn't we print a ton of money and? You know, QE in 2009 and 2010. And, and the Fed, we criticized the 2% inflation target, but it was actually even a little bit below that level for that period. So all the money printing people say, look, we did it. Works great. Paid for all this cool government giveaway stuff. Let's keep yeah. doing it. 
Well, well, Dick has written about the vast increase in the money supply. You know, it, what, what, happen, what happened in 2008 confused a lot of people, uh, basically because the Fed was, uh, you know, very aggressively stimulating, uh, certainly with the three QE programs. It's just that the banking system had broken down. In other words, the banks were uh, reducing the asset size, their asset size and their lending was decreasing. And if uh, banks you know, if you will, banks do print money themselves. And the way they print money is by making loans. So if your banking system is reducing the money supply by shrinking the loans in existence, and your Fed is increasing the money supply, you know, what we saw in that period was you kind of evened out and, and you got a false sense of the fact that the Fed could print as much money as they want, the government could borrow as much money as they want, but they're not thinking about the whole system. The whole system, you got to go through the banks. And, and the banks, and, and if you take a look at the money supply of the United States, roughly 82% of it, the way they calculate it now, is deposits in banks. If deposits in banks, and by the way, deposits in banks have been going down for the last two months. If deposits in banks go down and the Fed is printing money, one is counteracting the other. And that's what happened in that period. But, you know, I, I'm a, f a very strong believer that federal deficits are simply no good. And funding those deficits create uh, distortions all through the system, and they're extremely bad. And inflation is one of the distortions that they create. So I think that the core is you got to get to the federal deficits, and you got to stop them. As Nathan mentions, the idea of social disorder, inflation creates economic and political chaos in the long term. I, actually, I want to address that. It was kind of a long topic, but I think there's more to it. Um, yeah, so we so we were have we've had this period where it seems like they got away with it since 2008 with QE one and two three and, and even more recently because there has been some inflation, but uh, compared to the amount of money they printed in 2020, it's kind of been pretty modest, I think. And there is a, a, a major factor here, which is being more broadly recognized, and that is banks uh, completely changed the regulatory structure in response to the crisis of 2008. Um, they held very, very little cash on their books, uh, essentially deposits of the Federal Reserve prior to 2008. And they had been dragged, they had been taking this down since the 1950s because it's more profitable if you, if you borrow, if you lend this stuff rather than keeping it, you know, non-interest bearing debt or non-interest bearing deposits at the Fed. And that all like blew up, went up in flames in 2008. Uh, so they said, oh, oh, oh we, we can't do this. And not only that, we have to have a regulation because if we, unless we have regulations, the natural competition of management is going to have the same result. So they went to Basel and they, and they passed Basel 3, which they passed in November of 2010. And they said, we're going to hold a ton of cash. And they phased this in through 2019, final phase in, in 2019. So banks' requirements to hold money at the Federal Reserve uh, increased steadily through that decade. And yeah, the Federal Reserve had to create it. You know, if, if the Federal Reserve required every American to hold $2,000 in $20 bills under their bed in case of emergencies, and those $20 bills didn't exist, we'd have a problem. So they had to print them. They would have to print them. And that's essentially what they did with the banks. And then they went into 2019, actually went the full, with full phase in. They actually had, were short. They had a pretty big shortage compared to where they should have been. And, um, and then they went in 2020 and they had a crisis. And so the Fed did two things. It filled, it kind of resolved the prior shortage at the end of 2019. Uh, but there's, you know, bank to interbank lending rate breached 8% in some situations there, very high. And that absorbed a lot of the money. And then they kind of went overboard and then the currency fell. Uh, but the point is that phase is done. 
So we had this regulation that required banks to hold much, much more money, and we had to create the money so that they could meet the regulation. And they're done. The, the tanks are topped up. They have tons of cash. Uh, and the Fed realized this, I think, in 2021. They didn't realize in 2020, 2019, or they wouldn't have made the error. Uh, and so, so that's what happened. That's like the you know, the technical side. But then on the political side, all these all these people in Congress say, "Hey, we've been printing money like crazy, getting away with it. This is great." Well, that's gone. You're done. If you print any, if you do that again, it's you know, there's nowhere for the money to go. There's no reason for it to exist. And that is when the the, the consequences. You know, if we if we printed three trillion, you know, created three trillion dollars, and not much happened. We created. If we, I think, if we did that again, in you know, similar. Time frame, the dollar would collapse. It would go to one tenth of its value, is my guess. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973 529 4699. That's 973 529 4699. 973 529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.